outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 150. And today in the show, we are joined by a super successful DIY public land deer hunter known by some as The Professor, Joe Elsinger, and this, in my opinion, is one of the most interesting and helpful interviews we've recorded in a long time. So, get ready for some serious learning. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we are diving deep into the mind of a super successful DIY public land deer hunter a man known by some as the professor, and to the rest of the world by the name of Joe Elsinger. And today we're going to poke and prod and question and harass Joe until he shares with us everything (laughs) we need to know to have the same kind of deer hunting success that he's had. So what do you think, Dan? Does that sound like a good strategy for today? Uh, Yeah, it does. Uh, I've been thinking about property in general. Uh, Today I called... I call today an access route day because for some reason I get in these days where I have these days where I just think a lot about access routes. I don't know why. That's good. Access routes yeah. are important. <laughs> Did you come to any kind of like monumental conclusion? Do you have a new access route planned or are you going to call someone new to get permission on a neighboring property or something good like that? Yeah, a little bit of all that. Um, I don't know if you remember me talking about using cricks at the beginning of this past year to mm-hmm. access some stand locations. Yeah. Well, because I tagged out so early, I didn't. I didn't do any of that. So this year, I'm going to try to implement a little bit more of that strategy. I like it. Do you have like a specific crick that you're thinking about? I mean, is that like a general idea, or do you have like specifics, like to get to this stand, or I want to put oh, a yeah. stand off this crick? Right. I need, I have some specifics already. Um, I'll go in, I'll hang the stand here probably in July, June or July. And that way it's up. Uh, and the only thing that I I'll need to do is probably put the bottom two sticks on. And so then, so then that's all I need to do for the setup. Right. Uh, now my problem that I'm running across is do I leave my truck parked on the road or not? And I don't know if I like that idea. So 
A, I might have somebody drop me off or B, I might um, talk to a farmer just to see if I can park my truck in their field. Now, why don't you want to park on the road? Just because you're worried about your truck getting messed with or you yeah. don't want people to know you're hunting there or what? A little bit of both. Um, dude, I there was a time when I was hunting uh, back to shipwreck, this big deer. And the first two years, I almost had the place to myself. And then, you know, I don't know, people must have recognized, put me and my truck together. And then the next couple of years, more and more and more people started hunting that property. And now I don't even hunt that property anymore. So I got a question about that. Where, where do you stand on stickers on your truck? Do you have any decals or stickers hunting related on your truck? Uh, not on my truck. No, I don't have any. I don't. I mean, for some of that, it's just a big, hey, look at me sign. And for, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, I don't own property. I don't, I don't lease property. So I can't tell, you know, hey, stay away from me. I can't say that. So I have to be as under the radar as humanly possible on some of the areas that I hunt. And, uh, and that's part of the reason I went with the truck that I went with. It's low key. When I, when I decided to buy a truck, it's low key. It's not flashy. It's not jacked up. And, uh, it's the same color as my current, as my previous truck. So it's just kind of no stickers. People, they'll drive by it and they won't think about it. But if you have some giant bone collector, uh, decal on the back window of your truck, people will remember that and they'll recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. I've bounced around on this a lot. I've gone back and forth between like, I don't want anything on my truck to then one day I'm like, you know what? Damn it. I want something on there. And then like a couple months later, I'm like, eh, I don't want attention drawn. <laughs> and I'm kind of in that, I ended up putting some stuff on my truck and then like, I ended up having someone like tweet like, I think Wired to Hunt is at this exit off such and such highway. And I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> right. Because right. there are some stickers that kind of made it, gave them a good guess that this might be my vehicle. And it was. Right. So, <laughs> then, so here's my idea to cope with that. Okay. Okay. That, that would be to take all the decals that you've ever wanted to put on your truck and put them on your wife's minivan. <laughs> yeah. My wife's car. No, min- yeah, no, no car. kids. No kids yet. No minivan yet. But, uh. Right. She does have a wired on sticker in her car, so there's well, she that. She needs a bone collector sticker. She needs a rage in the cage sticker. She needs what else? What's a popular sticker? That uh, browning deer, right? Yeah. With, or the <laughs> the buck with the doe, and then they look like they're in a heart. Uh-huh. That's perfect. You need one of those. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah, all right. Well, I'm going to get right on that. Speaking of okay. <laughs> speaking of your suggestions for what me and my wife should do, I told her about your suggestion last week that we should fumigate our camper with car exhaust. Yeah. And she thinks you're an idiot. So there's that. <laughs> you know, I need to have a sit down conversation with your wife sometime you because, you know, I'm not here to brag, but, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm kind of cool. I'm kind of cool in a way. Kinda. I think she thinks I'm some dumbass. <laughs> she just thinks you're trying to kill us, Dan. I'm trying to pull oh, I'm not, I'm not car trying to exhaust kill into the camper. <laughs> well, if you do that, you're the idiot. Yeah. <laughs> it can be done. It can be done and done right. Trust me. So so we shouldn't be in the camper when we're doing that, though, right? <laughs> I have good news, though, Dan. What? I have what? I have dealt with the mice problem without needing to use car exhaust. Okay. So what would you do? How would you do it? We used a multi-pronged approach 
utilizing okay. several different mouse traps in a number of different locations, and we ended up harvesting three. Ooh! <laughs> we we tagged three nice, uh, well, two, well, heck, I don't know. I'm not sure if they're Wyoming mice or Montana mice, um, but we got one of them killed while we were in Wyoming, and then we made the switch to Montana, and there were two more that I think came along for the ride is my best guess. And uh, one of them, unfortunately, might be with us for a long time, though, because we heard a snap, one of the traps go off in the middle of the night, and then I kept hearing this clunking and all this noise and stuff, and I'm like, oh, man, what is that? So, like, I don't know, 10 seconds later, I go walking into the bathroom, and I open up the cabinet, and you, I just saw in time the back end of one of these traps trailing behind there's this little, there's this opening <laughs> underneath our sink that goes down behind the shower and that must be where they're coming in through That's and funny. we must have got this this mouse by the foot or the leg or something he was able to drag himself back in there and then for the rest of the night underneath the camper somewhere in some part of the camper i can't get to you could just hear this clanking around and shifting and clicking and clacking and he probably died down there and so i've got a rotting mouse uh that we're going to be carrying around but uh, three down. Hopefully that's it. Hey, I tell you what. My grandpa had this machine shed with a like a <laughs> a room that was that was framed in. I love when we talk right. about your family. It's <laughs> well, well. Just listen. It's kind of a cool story. So he he has he got some mice in his insulation, and the cats weren't doing their job. And he puts he puts uh, this regular old mouse trap down, and it goes off. And the next day, it's not there. Well. There was a possum that got into the garage and it had a mouse trap stuck to its tail and you could hear it in the machine shed <laughs> drag that mouse trap across the, like the I-beams when it would walk up in the uh, up in the roof of it right. and uh, it was hilarious and it took him like oh 5 months to kill it cuz he could never find it but when he killed it finally he he, he found the mouse trap still attached to this possum's tail and did he reuse it after that? I don't know about that, but <laughs> is this the is this the grandpa that was married to your grandma who used to make you beat rodents over the head with a bat when you guys trapped him or something like that? Yep, that was that same family. Yep, I like that. Family. I was the I was the executioner for the animals that were still alive in the traps. And and all the questions people have had about nine fingers, <laughs> this answers it for you. <laughs> Hey, Mark, we better start talking about deer because uh, we don't want any more negative reviews, okay? Uh, we get a couple of those. That's all right. <laughs> I want to talk about two more things not related to deer, though, really quickly. Okay, okay. Because, you know, I'm, I'm taking my little deer um, break while I'm out west, although I'm seeing deer and thinking about deer. But number one, I yeah. saw seven grizzlies in one day, a couple days ago. That is ridiculous. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So, now that you know that they're in the area, do you ever get a little freaked out? Like, uh, really, a grizzly bear could get into this camper if they really wanted to. Well, where we're camped right now, th- we're not worried about bears where we're camped right now. We're down in the middle of a valley. That's that's Bears wouldn't be that close. Where we saw these bears was actually in Yellowstone, about 50 miles south of us. We were oh, hiking okay. down there. So, not worried about that. And, and I've, I've camped a lot in places where there's grizzlies. And I don't know, I'm just not really worried about them getting in the camp or anything. And when, we, when I backpack and you're like in a little tiny tent, 10 miles in there, you know, all by yourself, then you think about it a little bit more. But, I, I, you know, 
like we've talked about in the past, when you're in bear country, you just follow the basic best practices. Don't have food in your tent. Don't cook next to your tent. Don't do anything stupid like that. And they're going to mind their own business as long as you mind yours. So when I first started doing this stuff, I definitely was really nervous about it. But now I've, I've gotten pretty comfortable. And um, on this hiking trip, it was pretty cool. We, we headed down there. We saw one black bear on the drive down. We pull off at this trailhead. We are... Um, when we're getting our stuff together and everything, and a guy pulls in next to us and pulls out a spotting scope. And so you guys want to see a grizzly? We're like, sure. And there's a grizzly, I don't know, 500 yards away off in this kind of this deadfall cluster of trees and stuff. So that was kind of how we kicked it off. Started hiking, and about three, four miles back in there, um, I spotted this like low brown shape coming our way. And every time I saw anything that looked like that, I'd pull out my binos and check it out because that guy who showed us the bear and the spotting scope, he also said that he saw seven grizzlies all together feeding on a dead carcass. Some, I don't know if it was an elk or a bison or whatever, um, but not too far away. So we definitely knew they were in the area. And um, long story short, here's a grizzly probably 100 yards away walking towards us and we're, you know, three, four miles back off, just the two of us. And that was actually the first time I've seen a grizzly while out in the wild, you know, hiking. All the other grizzly settings I've had have been from the road. Um, but this one, we were, it was just us out there, just him out there. And he was just walking towards us. And so I then eventually just started kind of talking a little bit louder to make sure he knew we were in the area and we weren't going to surprise him. And he stopped and kind of looked up at us and we watched him and he looked, watched us and he just sat down. He sat down like a dog and just kind of looked at us. And it was just the coolest thing, just kind of being in some small way, you know, having this like one-to-one connection with a big grizzly bear in the wild. Um, I don't know how to describe it, but it was, it's, it's a unique kind of special thing that we don't get that often these days. So we got to watch him for like 15, 20 minutes. He slowly went back and started walking away and we gave him his distance and just kind of hung back and watched and he walked off and... We continued down the trail past him, um, far out of his range, and then we stopped and looked back again, and he was kind of watching us, and then he walked the other way, and as I'm watching him, I caught a little bit of movement on the horizon on this other ridge, maybe a couple hundred yards away, and I pull out the binos, and there is a monstrous grizzly bear, another one that he, I mean, like a tank. Like, the bear we were watching, we're like, oh, that's a nice, like, mature bear. Looked like a good-sized bear, but this one looked like, something from Alaska. I mean, it just looked like a tank with four legs lumbering down this ridge towards us. That was like a holy crap moment. <laughs> and, uh, he, you know, luckily that was, uh, that was a fine encounter too. He just kind of walked down the ridge a little bit, then turned, went the other way. And we continued hiking and saw another black bear. And, um, when we came walking back a little later that day, the original grizzly was napping. We could see him up on the hillside, laying down like a dog again. Um, so just a super cool encounter. And uh, ended up seeing two different sets of grizzly sows with cubs on the drive back that day, too. And one of them was like 50 yards off the road. Um, So the bears are definitely out and feeding right now and uh, packing on the pounds post-hibernation. So did any of those bears look at you like, man, that thing over there looks delicious? (laughs) I don't think so. I think the only two, the, the two bears saw us. Um, you know, when we were out there hiking and it was mostly just kind of curiosity, they were just kind of, right. what's that? And they looked at us and we looked at them and, you know, we didn't intrude on their space and, uh, we just made sure that they knew we were there and we were going our own way. And, 
um, they just did their thing. So it was pretty cool. You know, I think a lot of people assume, especially if you're not, you know, often around these animals or in these types of places, I think the average American assumes these are bloodthirsty, scary, vicious, monstrous creatures. And while they are definitely wild animals and they definitely can be dangerous, um, nine times out of 10, they just want to go about their business. And if you let them do that and you, uh, you know, respect their, the fact that they are wild animals, I think it's, it's a pretty cool situation. So I'm very, I'm very glad there are still places out there where, um, you know, the full suite of wildlife and predators are out there and you can still experience what it's like to, you know, really be in a wild, a wild ecosystem. So, right. Right. Did, um, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't spring, uh, they have their cubs in hibernation, right? Then they come out and aren't the mothers like really territorial they they're very very protective yeah yeah you're right they do have their they do have their cubs either hibernate they come out and yeah that's probably the most dangerous bear is a mama bear with cubs that you've surprised and are like close that's like probably the most dangerous situation so definitely this time of year you know if you're hiking around places where there's lots of cover or lots of noise you know from a river or something you know we always just make sure to be loud when we're hiking through there so that we don't surprise anything. And, right. um, you know, to this point, you know, we've been out here in grizzly country for, you know, taking trips for probably a decade now and knock on wood, we haven't had any kind of dicey encounter because I think we've made sure not to let that kind of situation happen. Right. So Man. someday. Yeah. Now I will say I'm about to embark on an adventure that is probably the most sketchy grizzly related thing I'll have ever done. Because starting this weekend, I'm going to start my bear hunt, my black bear hunt. And I'm now... In Montana, right? In Montana, yep. And I've switched up the destination where I'm going to do that hunt. And now I'm going to be bear hunting in territory that grizzly bears also inhabit. Originally, it was going to be a spot where there weren't grizzlies. But we kind of found a nice spot that we like here. And I got some... Did some research and chatted with some people, and I found a pretty good spot, I think, to go chase some black bears, but uh, there's also potential of running into a grizzly. So um, sneaking around, you... being quiet with, you know, grizzly bears around and the potential surprise one, I think I will be kind of uh, a little more on edge than I usually am. But uh, that'll right. be the fun part, right? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really pumped, though. I'm really, really Can excited. You a grizzly bear with the same tag, or does it have to be a black bear? No, grizzly bears are, they're still endangered species, so you, it is illegal to shoot one. Oh, okay. I got gotcha. you. In, in the lower 48. So gotcha. no shooting grizzlies. I can only shoot a black bear. Um, you know, if it's a life-threatening situation with a grizzly and it's self-defense, um, yeah. you know, that can happen. But, you know, hopefully that hopefully that won't be an issue. I'll bear spray. Worst-case scenario, something comes up close, use that. But, um right. I'm really excited chasing black bears and get up in the mountains and hiking and glassing and I I don't know what I'm doing at all though. So I've just been like watching YouTube videos and reading articles and talking to a few people and like I was watching YouTube videos on how to properly cape out and skin out a black bear and all this stuff. So uh, it's going to be a big uh a big new experience. But is this a uh, a backpack tent? type of hunt or is this a hunt from the truck or hunt from your camper type of hunt i'd like to backpack in there but because my wife is here with me and the dogs i don't think she really wants to be left alone for three four days so i'm gonna go in and just do day hunts and come back and meet her at the camp at night so gotcha it'll be a little more hiking probably but um we'll make it work 
So perfect. That's the game Good plan. Good luck, man. Thank you. I'm finally catching fish too. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, there's been. Can some... you eat those, or do you have to throw those back? You can eat them. I've just been throwing them back. I think I don't know for whatever reason. Um, trout, I just catch and release. Um, right. It seems like that's just a thing to do. So. There's been a good caddis hatch, catching some rainbows and some cutthroat, and that's my story. So I think we got to, uh, what am I trying to say? I think we got to shut this down, though, and uh, and get our, our guest on here because we got to talk big whitetail bucks. Amen. All right. Well, let's take a quick break for our sickest story, and then we're going to get Joe on the line. So our sickest story today is going to be a little different than planned. The second story today is going to be from me, actually, because since I recorded this initial interview with Dan, my plans for my bear hunt have changed. And now today, actually, that's Thursday, I'm going to be heading out on my very first black bear hunt, but not on my own now as originally planned. Instead, I'm going to be bear hunting with my friend, the ultimate public lands advocate and TV and podcast host, Randy Newberg. Randy was gracious enough to invite me along to hunt with him after we met up the other day, and I'm pretty excited because I'm going to get to learn from someone that has you know, been a tremendously successful bear hunter. So right now, here's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling really excited to go out and see some bears. I'm feeling much more confident that I might actually fill a tag since Randy knows a whole lot more than I do about what to, about what to do when actually chasing these bears. And finally, I'm also feeling a little bit nervous because I'm afraid Randy might out-hike me up and down these mountains. I mean, he lives out here in Montana all year round so i might be about to get embarrassed here in the next few hours i'm not sure but uh this is a sickest story still in progress so in our next episode we'll return with updates on how the hunt went and uh, maybe even have some audio from the film that's going to come from this hunt so i'm excited about that and on this adventure i will be wearing my sicka core lightweight tops and bottoms and my 90 percent pants and jacket and if you'd like to make a Sitka story of your own someday, you can learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel at sitkagear.com. And now, let's get back to the show and bring Joe on the line. And now with us on the phone is Joe Elsinger. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. How are you today? I'm good. Yeah, sun's finally out after about three days of rain. So Amen. Amen. Can't complain. Yeah, I we've been dealing with the same thing. I'm temporarily in Montana, and it's been raining and snowing for the past week. So I'm hoping yeah. spring, hoping spring will finally be here. But Joe, I appreciate yeah. you taking the time to do this. Um, I first found out about you not too long ago um, by way of my friend Andy May, and he's been putting together these little Q and A blog posts for Wired to Hunt. And recently he featured you and your hunting tactics. And after reading through that, I, um, man, I just really enjoyed your perspective that you shared on that. You had a lot of interesting tactics and experiences you shared, but I just liked the way you approached hunting and the things that, you know, the way you explained things. I think it was, um, I don't know. I think there was a lot of value there. So immediately after reading that, I was like, all right, I need to get Joe on the podcast to dive into this stuff further. <laughs> so, so that's what I want to do today. I really want to get into a lot of things as far as how you hunt, um, why you do the things you do, but um, but before that, I guess, can you just give us kind of the the Joe Elsinger one hundred and one? What's your story? Um, how'd you get to this point? What's the evolution of of you as a deer hunter looked like to this point? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, 
I guess first, I mean, it's a, it's a little surreal being on this podcast. I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty sure I've listened to every single Wired Hot podcast. <laughs> Thank I'm kind you. of a podcast junkie. Yeah. And I've, I've listened to a lot of Dan's uh, Nine Finger Chronicle podcast, too. He does a good, great job, too. So kudos <laughs> to both of you. I, I love it. So, Thank um, you. And I know I'm not the only guy. Um, so, well, that's all we need for anyway, today, guys. Joe, we're done yeah. with you. That's, yeah. that's, 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 that was yeah. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Continue. So, yeah, um, I'm from Iowa. Uh, I live in Iowa. I, I lived a few other places, too, in, the, in between now and growing up. But uh, um, I kind of live in eastern Iowa. Uh, I started... A lot of, like a lot of other guys, I started hunting at a young age, um, small game, deer. I, I worked my way up to deer. I don't think, I think I shot my first deer maybe when I was 12 years old. Um, but, uh, I killed a pile of rabbits and squirrels before that. And just, I mean, the first thing I remember hunting when I was maybe six or seven was I had my BB gun and I was trying to shoot the heads off grasshoppers and I'd feed them to the chicken. <laughs> so that gives you an idea. I think I was born a hunter, um, for better or worse. That's and, awesome. uh, uh, I'm still that way. So, <laughs> well, I haven't shot a grasshopper in a long time. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I started bow hunting when I was 13 or 14 and bow hunted. I haven't missed a season. Um, I spent a lot of my time here in Iowa, but I, I, last few years I've tried to branch out, kind of push my boundaries. Um, I've gone elk hunting a few times, tagged a couple elk. Um, and I've, I've started hunting deer up in Northern Wisconsin, which is really cool. I think I've learned a ton up there. I've learned about as much up there in the last three or four years, uh, as you know, the last 10 years down here at Iowa, cause it's completely different, different deer numbers. They move differently. There's wolves, there's, you know, it's big woods. So, um, yeah, any, I guess anything specific you want me to touch on, um, fire away. Nice. No, that's definitely interesting to hear about that unique perspective based on trying to hunt some different places. Um, and I'm going to be interested in hearing about some of those differences and, and what you did learn. Um, but I guess let's continue to set the stage. Can you dive into a little more detail in regards to what your current hunting situation is like, um, in Iowa? And then I guess you can, you can touch on the Wisconsin piece too, but I'm kind of curious about, you know, what are the types of places you're hunting? I mean, are these big parcels, small parcels, public, private, yeah. et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. So so I grew up, you know, hunting farms around where I, where I lived, um, uh, like a lot of rural kids. Um, yeah, I kind of grew out of that, went, went to school, um, and came back. And in the meantime, you know, you, you never keep access to the same piece of private land for very long. Um and uh, I've, I've never had the opportunity to hunt any big, you know, exclusive access uh, hunting estate, uh, unfortunately. So um, I, I've transitioned more to public land, and I, I'm really drawn to public land um, because it's really a level playing field. You know, you and everybody else out there, it's the same set of rules you got to play by. Anybody who goes there with a tag can play by those rules. Um, so... You know, kind of for the last decade, I, I transitioned to just about, uh, well, I, I bow hunt almost all public land, and I still, uh, I hunt late season in the muzzleloader as well, um, and I hunt some private land there, um, but uh, for those that tune that out, I'll just say I've never shot a deer out of a food plot in my entire life, so I'm not one of those uh, <laughs> kind of hunters, <laughs> um, 
but uh so i you know i i bow hunt uh public land and i i cover a lot of public land i've learned um you know i'm fortunate to live in iowa and hunt iowa and we still have good age structure of the bucks for open access land but it's nothing compared to what you see on tv i can assure you that um you know that i'll i'll try to find a four-year-old or older buck um and uh to hunt every year um and, and usually i try to find four or five or six of those um but i have to cover uh, like right now i'm covering probably five thousand acres of public land um across about 10 different parcels to find that that number of deer you know resident bucks to hunt sure there might be a few more that drift through in the rut but um you gotta work your tail off to find them you know and they're, and they're not where everybody else is hunting so I'm sure guys have, guys have heard uh, that song and dance. You gotta, you know, um, you gotta look where everybody else is in hunting. But um, that's that's my situation right now. Um, and I, I mean, I just love the love the chase. Uh, I love I love hunting down those deer. You know, that's my passion. Um, and anything else for that matter. But uh, um, I I really like. Uh, you know, the, just the year-round chase. I'm scouting year-round. Um, the day I kill a deer, the next day, or, you know, the next, or almost, after, as soon as I have that deer cut up and in the freezer, I'm thinking about how to get, uh, you know, next year's deer. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we definitely can relate to that for sure. Me and as you know, Dan and I both uh, <laughs> we share in that year round yep. obsession. Yeah, um, yeah. I-, I want you to elaborate on the on the scouting piece because one of the things that you yeah. mentioned in that Q and A that we published earlier um, was this scouting journal that you kept, and you kept track of all the details of how much you scouted, how many miles you walked, what you saw, all these different things. Um, can you yep. walk us through? everything you could possibly share with us about your scouting plans and strategy and, and that journal and, and yeah. how all that helped you. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I did that journal. I think it was for the 2015 year, a couple of years ago, but it's still very valid. Um, my, my strategy evolves a little bit every year, but it's the same approach generally, um, overall. So, so really my scouting starts, if you want to look at a year, in time, my scouting starts the previous season for that year, and really, you know, every year kind of blends together. I'm looking at stuff two, from two years ago, even. But uh, a big part of my strategy is keying in on annual patterns, um, and and I think that's extremely important for anybody hunting mature bucks, um, because by the, you know, if you're hunting mature buck, let's say a four year old or older buck, um, that buck's been around several years, and so if you're not new to the area, you should have some observations from them from previous years. And some things change, but a lot of things stay the same of how they, uh, you know, how they move across the land, what bedding areas they use, some of their preferred food sources, uh, how they, uh, you know, move through there uh, during the rut. And uh, anyway, the previous year, when I'm not hunting, and um, I, I actually don't hunt a whole lot. I mean, that sounds weird. I'm talking about bow hunting, you know. Um, I I do a lot more scouting than bow hunting. I probably do two to three times as much scouting as actual bow hunting. Wow. Um, and even if I have a tag, um, I'm only actually hunting when I think I'm going to kill a buck. Um, and by no means am I only, you know, I, I'm not bad to hunt a percent. 
I'd be thrilled if I was batting, you know, 30 percent. Right. Um, usually right. it's more like one in 10 or one in six, to be honest, in the last few years, um, which is still pretty darn good. Heck yeah. Um, but uh, I don't, you know, I try to I try to get out there uh, once or twice a week, whether to scout or to hunt. Um, I'm looking at tracks. Um, I'm looking, I'm tying in previous year's observations. I'm looking at food sources. Um, I, you know, a, a big bucks pattern um, through the fall. I think a lot of guys have a little bit of a misconception of, um, you know, he's doing the exact same thing. It's really changing day by day and week by week. Um, early season patterns can be a little more extended, but as you get into October, the rut's heating up, food sources are, are switching on and off. Um, hunting pressure is changing every week. You have seasons coming on and, and going off. Um, and you're more and more interested in does. So, um, you really got to take advantage of something the instant you see it. Um, you know, oh, you know, oh, he, you know, he's frequent in this bedding area and, it's, you know, the late pre-rut and there's, uh, you know, he's probably heading this direction to nose around the nose in the area and boom, you hunt it, you get the right wind, you kill him. Um, and, uh, anyway, I, I'm scouting the previous fall, the previous winter. I mean, through the winter, if there's snow on the ground, you can't really see a lot of that rut sign. Um, or really any sign on the ground, but you see deer tracks everywhere, and they may or may not be in the same areas as the rest of the year, um, but you, you can just learn how they uh, move across the land. Just find a, uh, find a set of tracks and follow it around. And for anybody new to tracking, I highly recommend that. Like, um, you know, it, go tracks. Just see how they move across the land, because every terrain's different. You know, I, I hunt a lot of uh, hills and farm country in eastern Iowa, um, and, you know, a little bit of big woods up there in Wisconsin, but, uh, um, my bread, you know, my bread and butter is, is hill country, bluff country. Um, and I know that very well, but, and I couldn't tell somebody who's hunting pancake flat land, um, you know, how deer are moving there, but I can tell them how to find it out, you know? So, um, it's, you learn so much by just following deer around. I did that when I was a kid, and that helped my you know understanding of deer immensely. When you're um, doing that, and then comes spring. Yeah. Uh, when uh, quick question, Joe. When you're doing that, you know, in the winter, yeah. there's snow on the ground. Yeah. Um, like, are you are you just walking and following around these tracks and just kind of taking it all in and thinking about it and just kind of out of curiosity following or are you following a set yeah. of tracks and then like writing that down and taking note okay i thought that you know most of the tracks all came through this little low spot in the field check that off my journal in the future i'm going to know that yep. at this time of the year they're coming through here and then you're looking for specific bedding areas i mean i mean how detailed do you get with that and is it kind of just yeah. all in your head or do you record it some way or, or what do you do with that stuff yeah so yeah i, I take notes um i probably take more detailed notes than your average uh, your average hunter, no doubt. But I, I try not to get too detailed because I mean I, I don't want to write pages and pages. Um, and so it's a little bit of both. I mean sometimes sometimes I am just following tracks for the heck of it and see where they lead. Other times, for, for instance, um, I killed a, a buck late season, uh, not late season, late November uh, with a bow in 2015, and um, in 
the spring, oh, it was it was like January, so it was it was still winter of 2015. So almost a year before that, um, I was circling around this one bedding area, and I caught this great big square set of tracks uh, coming out of that bedding area. There was a fresh snow, a real fresh sticky snow, and it was a northeast wind, um, and uh, I followed it in, and he bedded on the downridge side downwind side of a thicket kind of on a little point um public land this is uh you know three quarters of a mile in from access it was probably almost a mile um and anyway um here my 2015 season was you know um i i was having a little hard time getting on the box a little harder time than usual getting on the box in 2015 here comes late november and um bedding area, I knew um, that it was primarily a doe bedding area, but I'd seen that big set of buck tracks going through there. Well, I thought, what the heck, I'm going to uh, hunt that bedding area. It was late late rut. I figured a big buck might circle past there on the downwind side, uh, since checking for does, and it was potential for a buck even bedding right in there. And <laughs> anyway, long story short, I saw that buck flitting through there. Um, and I couldn't get a shot and I went back three days later and set up and I killed him. Um, I was probably set up within, I was set up within 40 yards of where I saw the big set of tracks 11 months earlier coming out of the bedding area. And I set up there for a reason. I knew that was probably how he was going to go in and come out. So every time you see something like that, you got to take note of it. So in in um, that situation, I guess that was a perfect example. That is a perfect example. In that situation, um, can you tell us about how you how you set up on that too? Because okay, so you knew there were tracks coming in and out of there the, yeah. the winter before. You went back in. Did you? So you did two hunts. I'm curious. Did you change your location from night one to night number two, or yeah. you know when did you set up? How did you do that in the middle of the season like that? Yeah. So that so that was kind of a quirky uh, series of events because it was late no late November. Uh, 2015. Anybody who remembers that in the Upper Midwest, we got a huge snowstorm. Um, I don't remember the exact. It was around November 20th or 22nd, I think. Um, so the first time I hunted there was right on the front side of that snowstorm, and that big buck was in there behind a doe, a late doe in heat. Um, well, usually I wear snow camo and the ground's white. Um, and by snow camo, I just wear pl- plain whites, and I think it blend in fantastic when the when the ground's white. And I'm, I was actually hunting from the ground because I knew. Uh, so to give you a little better idea of, um, it was on the top of a ridge, and it was an old clear cut, about 20 years old. So it was all grown up, um, but nothing big enough for a uh, stand. And frankly, you wouldn't even want to be off the ground because the canopy is so low you can actually see best if you're at ground level. Well, you're at ground level that, you know, you, you're prone to get uh, pinned down by a deer, and that's exactly what happened on the first hunt because I was wearing, you know, my usual brown-based camo, and everything was white out. I think I was wearing rain gear, actually, because it was, it was still snowing. Um, and a doe pegged me, and she busted out of there, and and I just caught sight of that buck. Well... I thought it was worth a second shot simply because, you know, there was a doe that looked like she was coming into heat and 
that we got a foot of snow. So that actually, it took, I think it was two days later, um, it took that long for the roads to get clear for me to get back there. Uh, and I hunted there again, and sure enough, here came this, uh, I, I set up, basically there was, um, when deer enter bedding locations, often they hook in from the downwind side. It's, it's kind of called a J-hook. Um, and th- this is something um, that I'm a member of the Hunting Beast website, and I highly recommend that place for anybody who wants to really understand white-tailed deer. Um, yeah, in my opinion, it's the best, the biggest collection of good deer hunters in the nation right now as far as an online forum, period, end of discussion. Um, and uh, anyway, they, they talk about J, this J-hook quite often, uh, and I've witnessed as well. Well, I set up on the downwind edge of this cover, figuring they were going to come kind of around the ridge and hook into there, and sure enough, that's exactly what they did. Uh, there was a doe came first, and it was actually perfect because she urinated about 30 yards in front of me, and the second hunt, I was wearing white camo, so I was sitting in a clump of saplings, completely blending in in a foot of snow, so only half of me was really sticking up out of the ground. Uh, and she urinated like 30 yards in front of me, and that buck came following her, and he buried his head right in the snow, and that was that because I had a perfect open shot. He was broadside. So. <laughs> that is perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dan. As, she, as soon as she was peeing in the snow in front of me, I was like, yep, this is going to be perfect. So, yep. <laughs> Gotta love that. Dan, what do you think yeah, about you, this? Yeah, now, now you mentioned you put in a lot more time scouting than you actually do hunting, and I think I heard you say some figures like one in six and one in ten. Does that mean that it only took you ten hunts throughout a specific year to yeah. to harvest your buck? Yeah, yeah, I mean... um, that that's a pretty good average. So, so let's see. On public land last year, I killed my buck on my second hunt toward the 2016. In 2015, I think it was 20 hunts. Um, like I said, I, I struggled mostly because I was going after one buck in particular. So I I ran off 10 or 12 hunts after one buck in particular. And I probably never should have. I never got him, but I came so darn close a couple times. Man, that was frustrating. <laughs> 2014 i killed my buck on my first time uh you know and etc usually usually i like like i said i i mean it sounds weird and i'm not bragging like i say that because i want people to understand how much work i put into preparing you know i i, I am exhaustive uh in regards to preparation uh and i don't start hunting you know this this Pass it, you know, I'll hunt whenever I think I have an opportunity to kill a buck. It might be early season, it might be pre-rut, it might be rut. Um, but until I think, okay, I can go in and kill this buck, I don't start hunting. I keep scouting. I keep I keep running trail cams. You know, maybe we can get into trail cams a little later. But uh, um, you know, that was going to be my next question. Areas. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking for bucks and I'm looking for opportunities. You know, anywhere. You know, I think. Oh, there's a high odds, you know, probability that a buck's going to be somewhere. You know, that's where it starts. It might be, you know, bed to food pattern. It might be, you know, coming through a doe bedding area in the rut. If, you know, anything, um, anything that I can intentionally, you know, go in there and find him, I'm doing it. But until then, 
I don't touch it. And I, I stay out of there like the plague. And I've learned that the hard way, you know? So, I mean, in high school, I would hunt every day I could. I, I would hunt 60, 80 times in a season. And I started out hunting much like everybody else. You know, I would have two or four, six or eight stands pre-hung at the beginning of the season, rotate through them. By the time the rut came around, I'd hunted all these spots, you know, three or four or six times. I wasn't seeing hardly anything except non-resident bucks coming through for the very first time. I was, you know, had a huge impact on on deer uh, in the area. And about 10 years ago, I started hunting a lot more mobile, kind of hand-in-hand with uh, hunting more public land. And, you know, if, if there was any secrets to my success, when I started hunting mobile and when I, you know, um, really focused on, you know, kind of first-time sits like that, um, that's, uh, I mean, just night and day different. I saw in the deer activity, I was, you know, I was catching deer by surprise. They, they were not expecting to be show up where I was showing up. And even if I blew up an area, I go somewhere else and I try it again and I don't stop. So, so kind of going back, how do you locate specifically these deer that make your hit list, you know, say, okay, I'm, yeah. my goal is to, is to shoot a four-year-old. How do you go about locating these, these bucks? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, a, a, a little bit of, so, so scouting, you know, I'm always looking for a really big set of tracks. Um, I, I think most hunters underutilize tracks. Um, I, I, I know some guys poke fun at me. Like I, I, I'm a, I have a foot foot fetish apparently because I just look. <laughs> if I see a dead big buck like lay in the back of somebody's truck, like everybody's grabbing their antlers, I'm looking at his feet. Like that, <laughs> I'm weird, you know. So what, what do you um, consider a big track? Just for people that aren't familiar um, with this, you know, how can they tell if it's a big, yeah, big buck or not? Yeah. So a lot of guys use hand size. I use hand size too. Well, um, that's relative to the size of your hands, and you know, I I'm a fairly big dude, and I have kind of flippers for hands so a lot of guys say a four finger track well four finger track for me is an elk so um (laughs) like like i measure um i've measured a few tracks and like i think the biggest track that i ever measured as far as width so the width of a track i think was like two and five eighths inches across and that's a not splayed out track a not running track that's just standing you know in hard grounds it doesn't sink in real deep when they sink in they splay out more too um just to give you an idea and and buck hooves you know up in canada that's probably not a very big buck but uh here that's a that's a whopper of a buck most bucks are probably around uh you know two and three eighths uh to two two and a half inches across that that that, uh, print at its widest point okay and again not splayed out that's just a standing print like you'd find in a scrape you know that's a big buck um and and also you know i do a little shed hunting most shed hunting for me is second to scouting and i think you have to you have to pick your priorities if you love finding shed antlers by all means go find shed antlers but know that you know you're going to miss stuff scouting and vice versa i've walked by a bunch of shed antlers probably because i'm busy looking you know, up in trees and it rubs and scrapes and, you know, I, I'm not looking explicitly for antlers. Um, and then finally, you know, I rely on cameras a lot. Um, and that was, that was, uh, 
kind of perfect segue question, I guess. Because <laughs> um, um, it ties into those late season patterns, not late, uh, annual patterns I was talking about. I really like to watch, look at like up and comer bucks, and a lot of those don't make it. You know, I'd say at least 50% of three year olds disappear, probably closer to 75% of three year olds disappear um, uh, on the lands that I hunt. Um, but, you know, I'm looking at all those, you know, that'd be a good buck, that'd be a good buck. And if I just get one glimpse of him that next year as a four year old, or, you know, maybe you even make it to five and I'd have a couple years of following him. You know, I just need one glimpse, and I know generally how he moves to the area. Um, and, you know, I, I know some things he prefers and I might be able to take advantage of. Um, so my trail cameras, I've really focused on um, inventory and low-impact monitoring. Um, and this is kind of, I'll freely admit, this is kind of a, a soapbox issue for me. Um, I, I think a lot of guys misuse cameras. I think, you know, the, the average hunter thinks, okay, you know, I'm going to hang my camera by my stand, check it every week, and I'll get a good buck on it, and I'll go back and I'll kill him. Well, you know how often that happens? Basically never. Like, I mean, the proof is in all, I read tons of stories from successful hunters. You know, everywhere I can find them, I'll read a story. And I take note of details like that. Like, okay, how did he find it? How did he kill it? Well, you know, you might have trail cam pictures of it, but did you intentionally kill it at the location of the camera or near the location of the camera? You know, yeah, go buy a Powerball ticket if you actually did. It doesn't work that way. You know, for a couple of reasons. It goes back to uh, bucks patterns change over the course of the fall, like I said. So there's a very good chance you're going to be a day late, you know, um, and secondly, just going in there and checking, you're, you know, you're intruding on that area, you're leaving ground set, um, and you're alerting him to your presence. So, and I know there's some ways around that. Like I know some guys have had good luck checking them off the backs of four wheelers and stuff, but still, I really like to focus on inventory. So I know what it bucks are in the area. And then I refer to the previous year's intel of how to kill them a lot and stuff like tracks where I can find tracks along field edges and I'll even put cameras along field edges sometimes and, and see what direction they're coming. But I honestly, I'm pr- it's pretty rare that I put a camera within 200 yards of where I intend to hunt. Um, and every situation is a little different, but um, I'm hunting based on my scouting and previous year's observations. And those cameras um, in the fall, I like to park them out there um, one thing, one really thing I really like to do in the rut, I drop them in to potential setups that I probably won't get to hunt. Cause like I said, I don't do that much hunting. Um, you know, exact, you know, especially during the rut, I'm not a huge fan of hunting during the rut, mostly cause of hunting pressure. It's just, you know, I don't like hunting around other hunters and that's all, all my property. All this public land is, is shared access. Um, and if everybody takes their two week rut vacation, um, which is all well and good, but I, I like hunting all by myself in October, um, and, and late season. Um, but anyway, drop in your camera, leave it soak all rut. Don't check it. Don't hunt nearby it and then pull it. That'll give you something to do in the winter. Analyze those photos. Look at what patterns there are. Okay. When are the bucks coming through? What direction are they coming through? 
where do you think they're coming from? Where do you think they're going to? What weather conditions are they mo- is most movement uh, on? You know, what types of wind, uh, wind and such? You can gain so much intel from that. Um, and I've really focused on doing that the last few years. And I'll have time to, you know, uh, especially during the rut, when you're trying to take advantage of an observation, you know, you might see a big buck chasing a doe. You need to go hunt that right now. Um, you know, you don't have time to go take time off and check cameras. So, um, I don't know. I highly recommend doing that. Um, and you really learn a lot about deer behavior, especially if you have, you know, several cameras. Like I don't have a ton of cameras. I know some guys run, you know, dozens of cameras. I've got six, seven cameras. Um, and, uh, but you take all, you know, if I can get four or five of them out in potential rut funnels and then line up those photos, you can see localized rut flurries. You can, you know, you, you can see when bucks pass through areas. It's just fascinating. So, Can you elaborate on specifically how you're setting up your cameras? I mean, like exactly like what height, what direction, what types yeah. of trees, um, you know, do you use any type of scent? protocol when dealing with those or anything like that to try to minimize your impact etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah yeah so um i've had the best so all right so i've i put my cameras on public land and to date i have not lost a single one to theft you know cross my fingers i'm gonna lose one eventually i know yeah. i am <laughs> Knock um, on wood. but uh yeah yeah i probably just jinx myself you know um <laughs> But, yeah, I, I mean, and I've been, you know, for around 10 years or so, I've been putting them out in public. Um, but I, I hang them high, and I hang them far back. So I'm not looking for pretty pictures. All I want is to be able to tell, like, you know, generally, okay, this looks like it's the same buck here as over there. Um, I don't need to know if it's a 13-pointer or a, or a 10, or a, you know, an 11 point. You know, I don't want to know the basic typical frame. Um, so I'm often 50 feet back from where I think, a buck's going to pass through 50, 60 feet. Um, and I, ha- I like to hang them at the least. I reach as high as I can. And I'm six, five. Okay. So I, you know, I can reach higher than most people, but I like to carry a stick in with me, put just one stick on the tree, climb up and hang it, you know, eight to 10 feet off the ground, angled down and it covers a really large area. And so, um, you know, early season, I really like to hang them on food sources, okay, on field edges or, or just off the field edge because on public land you got a lot of people walking field edges looking for tree stand setups. So I don't want to lose a camera there. I hang them just off the field edge, uh, you know, major like ditch crossings and stuff, leave bottlenecks leading into the into the uh, food source. I'm not looking to get deer on, on uh, daylight at all. You know, if it's an hour after daylight, perfect because I've already scouted all the bedding areas behind that food source, so I wouldn't be hunt, I wouldn't be hanging a camera there. I scouted them in the spring and the fall, the previous, you know. Um, and uh, I just want to know who's coming through and about when they're coming through, you know. Um, and then into October, really can't beat those big primary scapes. Um, and once again, I'm not hanging them on the uh, it, where I want to hunt, but I'm hanging them that'll get uh, places that'll have the most bucks coming through just to see who's there in the rut. I like rut funnels, um, you know, ditch, ditch crossings, fence crossings, any pretty tight bottleneck, um, that pushes, pushes deer through. Um, I'll, I'll have them in a lot of squirrely spots that, um, are really tough to hunt. 
um, but I can leave a trail camera there. So um, I, I really don't take a lot of scent precaution. Um, I, I do a little bit, um, like like the really big stupid stuff. And this this is a true story. I have smelled lavender scented hand lotion on somebody else's trail camera in the woods. <laughs> like like I can only imagine. That yeah, was like Dan's. he squirted his wife. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> like he squirted lavender scented hand lotion on his hands, like his wife's lotion or whatever. I was like, oh, I'm going to hang this camera. Well, I think I'd been there several days. You know, I, I wasn't sure, but that that scent was still there. And if I could smell it, a deer could smell that sucker from half a mile away. Like the, to me, that's like just a no brainer. Other than that, I'll spray them down. When you get them above deer height, you know deer uh, eyesight height, um, the ground your ground scent's still there. It'll fade in a few days. That's why I really focus on long term deployments. If you're there checking them every week. Your ground scent. If you didn't get any rain, your ground scent's still probably there at the end of a week with you know with dry condition or, or you know stable uh, weather conditions. It just lasts a long time. But I'm leaving my cameras out a month or more, so I want a long-term uh, observation of you know natural deer movement and uh, deer. You know, I, I know black flash is a new cool thing to have with cameras. I've experimented with it a little bit. If I just hang a plain infrared camera eight, ten feet off the ground, deer have no clue it's there. Uh, so that's what um, I was going to so, say. Yeah, that. If you're only checking your, if you're letting your trail camera soak, and you, like you said, long-term deployment, and your goal is a four-year-old, most yep. of your most of your information is coming from the previous year, then, right? And, and you're scouting. Yeah. So correct. Yeah. How how do you know? when you are going into a set that there is in fact a four-year-old buck working that area? Well, so I, I'd like one glimpse. So it may be a big set of tracks. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of low impact scouting right before the season and I do. So I, I shift my cameras. It varies, but a lot of times I shift them kind of month by month. I may get them in the summer. Um, and, you know, I like to check my cameras in September, a little while before October, on those prime food sources, see who's around, and then I'll shift them into, you know, uh, monitoring scrapes and stuff. But if, you know, if I see a big set of tracks, or I, I see them in the summer, and I know I got him the previous year as well, um, boom, you know, I'm, you know, I'm ready. Um, or, or, you know, I'll... I'll leave a camera soak all of October on a scrape and then I'll move it to a rut funnel, uh, in November. Well, maybe I got a big buck there in October. Um, and you know, especially in scrapes, if it, uh, you know, I always check the card when I grab the camera. And if I got a buck there, um, a, a buck that I'm interested in going after in the last several days, or even just since the last rain, I'll go out and try to find his track. Sometimes you can't find his tracks in front of the camera, but a lot of times you can, especially in a scrape. If I can find those big tracks, boom, I have an idea of tracks. And tracks are pretty distinctive. It's, it's pretty amazing. Like, I, I, I recommend, guys, um, take a photo of the next big buck. Like, take a photo of his tracks, or, or, or uh, of his feet. The next big buck you shoot, take a photo of his, his tracks. Do that three, four bucks and then line up those photos, you'll be amazed at the differences. I guarantee there'll be differences. Some have chip toes, some have square toes, some have 
um, like it, I mean, it, once you start looking at the, at the tracks, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, the differences between individual bucks and kind of, um, you know, one of the few benefits of not hunting highly managed land where you got a ton of four-year-olds running around. Usually there's only one, maybe two four-year-olds that have uh, overlapping home ranges on these public areas. So, you know, if you see a big set, it's even more easier, uh, you know, to say, okay, that's this buck, you know, it's not one of seven bucks. So. All right. Briefly now, we're going to pause for our weekly whitetail wisdom with our partners, whitetail properties. Here's producer Spencer Newharth. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Gabe Adair, a land specialist out of Southern Iowa. And Gabe is going to be telling us about what strategy changes need to be made when targeting mature bucks. Um, you know, this one I deal with a lot, and I've dealt with it a lot with mainly with clients um, in the past, whether, you know, clients that bought ground that, you know, are looking for advice or, or clients that, you know, I've, I've had hunting, you know, in, in camp or whatever. And there's two things. Um, the one that I feel like has always worked the best for me um, when dealing with other guys is I feel like you've got to get somebody in the frame of mind where they're more concerned about making a mistake than they are about killing an animal. And it slows you down because everybody knows that when you really get, you know, when you get these bigger half year old deer five and a half year old deer you know things go quick you know you start racing your mind's spinning and you've got to have a way to slow it down and the best way i've found to slow it down with people is to be more concerned about making a mistake i would rather get a guy to the point where he's coming back to camp with a foam picture of a deer walking off going did i make a mistake and telling me did then that I got five seconds to make a decision. I'm going to shoot this deer. Boom, it's done. You know, and so that's the big. One. I think you really got to be more concerned in a in a frame of mind about I don't want to make a mistake. And then the second one is is you got to be ready to not kill a deer. You got to be ready to let stuff walk and eat tag suit. You know, and so they're both really big ones. Um, the the first one's probably the hardest. You know, I think get people to that frame of mind. But then once you get to that point and you are better at slowing things down, you are good at judging and and being able to recognize what kind of an animal you got in front of you you know then you got to get into that frame of mind where i'm good if i don't harvest an animal this year i'm good if i don't shoot a deer on this trip you know and so those are definitely the two things i think you know right off the top that that a guy's got to get into when you're really starting to target you know upper age class white tails if you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that gabe currently has listed for sale visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Adair. That's A-D-A-I-R. So, okay. If I'm understanding right, I'm going to, I'm going to like recap what I've, what I've heard so far about your, about your overall high level philosophy. Basically you're, you're running cameras every year, collecting data. You are then checking inventory during the current season, trying to determine if buck X is still around. And if buck X is still around based on a glimpse or a track or a picture of him on a scrape or something, then you refer back to previous year's trail camera data to help you understand exactly when possibly where to focus during the season. Now the question though is, is when to strike. And I think there's two factors that you've mentioned here or two categories of factors that help you determine when to actually go and make that hunt. And I'm curious about how you rank them. So one would be the annual pattern. So you've got a trail camera picture of 
Mr. Big coming through on November 10th, 11th, and 12th. Maybe the year before yep. and the year before, maybe. But then the other set of factors that could influence, I imagine, that could influence when you would go to strike would be the um, outside factors, weather, um, you know, yep. moon phase or barometric pressure, anything like that that you may or may not take into consideration. So I'm curious, which of those is more important? So, I mean, like, if, if in the past he showed up on the 10th and 11th, but the 10th and 11th shows up and it's 75 degrees, are you still going to go in for your first sit there? because of the annual pattern or will the weather or whatever other factor make you say, no, this isn't it. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, yeah. So it's, it's the when and the where I probably didn't focus much on the where either. I'll, I can dive into that after, but right. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the when. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm fanatical about being in the right spot at the right time. So there's your when and where. So, uh, the when, um, I, I want to see the combination of factors come together. And I think that's how I've been able to be, um, you know, kind of boost my odds. Um, I want you know, I, I want to see a buck come through, like you say, that, you know, the 10th, 11th, 12th. You came through last year. Well, what weather conditions do you come in through? Okay. Um, say it was on the t- tail end of a big cold front with a screaming Northwest wind. Well, this year, we had that screaming northwest wind on the ninth. Boom! I'm there on the ninth. You know, or maybe it's the screaming northwest wind's not there till the fourteenth. I'm there on the fourteenth. So um, it's the, that approximate time. Not necessarily the calendar day. You know, it's absolutely not the calendar day. It's it's a spread of several days, um, especially depending on the time of the year. Peak rut is really fickle, as you guys mm-hmm. know. You know, you can go from great activity to you know dead stop the very next day. Um, but, uh, you know, bucks move from point A to point B for a reason. You know, they're either, you know, bed to food, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, escape routes, or they're seeking does. You know, it's about that simple. Um, and they move certain ways for a reason. Um, they use the land to their advantage. You know, I, and I hunt hills, and I kind of under, I'm beginning to understand how big bucks move through these hills to avoid getting killed, to stay alive at age four and age five. Um, and they'll, they'll, they'll move, you know, differently, but for the same reasons, uh, in different terrains. Um, but they, they will use the wind to their advantage when they're, you know, escaping from danger. Uh, however that may be, they'll send check areas that they think danger is in, danger is in. They'll use the wind to their advantage with seeking does, um, and, and, uh, they also, you know, are prone, say it's 75 degrees out in mid November. They don't, you know, they're going to, they, they move, they'll move a little bit, mostly at night. Otherwise they'll, you know, just, um, well, they can't sweat, but if deer could sweat, they'd be sweating. Um, you know, um, so if say that time period rolls around, I know a big bucks in the area. I know he was cruising the previous year, but it was really cold. Now it's really hot. Well, what's a good water hole nearby, you know, um, that uh, I might be able to set up on instead, uh, you know. To, so I, I really want to see several conditions line up. It's not just t- time of year. It's time of year and weather. Um, and, and bucks will move differently. Makes sense. Favor leeward slopes in the hills. Um, we could, you know, we can uh, dive into bedding too. That kind of takes me into the where, but... Uh, in regard to leeward slopes, they favor leeward slopes 
Um, it's a, it's kind of a wind advantage. Um, and I see bucks using, uh, windward slopes too, you know, so they're on the side of the wind hits some, and usually it's because there's not an easy access route on a leeward slope. Um, let's see what else, you know, and, and other things like what elevation they're traveling on. Uh, bucks really like to travel on that military crest, uh, for guys that don't understand what that is. Um, when you have a ridge, uh, it's flatter on top and a steeper side. It's right on the side of the ridge where the flatter area breaks to a steep, uh, slope. Um, um, you know, they favor the military crest traveling. That being said, they don't use that exclusively. They also have to avoid hunters. Um, and I see this a lot. Hunting pressure has by far the most impact, um, on deer movement, you know, uh, over just about anything else. So, you know, I didn't really mention it, but while scouting, I want to cover, um, I, I, I'm looking for hunter sign too, and I'm pinpointing where the uh, other hunters are hunting, um, both coming in from the public areas. And I, uh, like to hunt a lot of out of the way spots. So actually I end up facing a lot of hunters coming in from adjacent private land even, um, because I can outwalk most other guys uh, from the public parking lot, um, or you know, outswim or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, you got to do it on public land. You got to be where other guys are. You gotta, um, you know, if you want to hunt, if you want to kill deer that other de- other people aren't killing, you got to hunt them where other guys aren't hunting, and wherever that takes you. So, for instance, on a, you know, I I talked about bucks liking to move at the military crest. They also also like to bed at the military crest. Um, but you can have, uh, you know, if hunting pressure is mainly up high in hill country, um, say the access point is on the top of the ridge, well, very few guys go down into the bottom because, uh, you know, nobody wants to drag a deer up a 200 or 300-foot uh, hill or several of them to get them out. So where do the big bucks learn they, they can survive? they start bedding down low, you know, I've got several instances like that and I've killed bucks down low doing that. So, um, they go wherever the hunters are. So that's kind of the first thing. If I'm looking at a new property, cross off all those areas hunters probably are, and you can scout them very lightly, but usually I just walk right through them unless I see something, you know, glaringly obvious that, Oh, maybe there's no hunters around. And I'm focusing on a lot of times it's less than 25% of the property. Sometimes it's only 10% or less of the property, um, a few acres here or there that it's either overlooked or other hunters aren't going. And that's where the big boys are living, you know, in daylight, they're bedding. So, um, if that, that makes sense. It does. So that was good. I guess I, I tied into the, I tied a little bit into the where, you know, um, the but bucks bedding, man, we could, we could, uh, cover a whole podcast, uh, you know, of what I've seen. <laughs> Let's, um, let's get into buck, some of that, buck though. Buck behaviors, but, yeah. Um, well, so, around here, like, like I said, the, the primary ingredient is security, you know, and I know that's a lousy explanation, because everybody wants something that they can just take and be like, oh, a buck's bed in here, because Joe said so. Well, I can't say that, you know. I don't, I don't know your situation. But I do know that big buck's primary goal is staying alive. So, he's going to bed where... He can easily see, hear, smell something sneaking up on him, and he can get out of there, preferably without the hunter or coyote or whatever it is, ever knowing he's there. 
Um, and, uh, you know, so in hills, bucks love bedding on points, you know, on little secondary ridges um, at the military crest, wind coming over their back. You see that all the time. Well, you throw the hunting pressure into a, into a, uh, you know, into a situation, and that's when I start to see some funky things. Like I'll see bucks bedding down low on real low benches and points. I'll see them, you know, when you get into more open farm country, you see them bedding on the tips of draws or little islands of timber, even out on terraces. Um, and every single time you see a bedded buck, um, I highly recommend you go there and you sit down in the bed. And I didn't come up with that. You know, that's Dan Infault, who runs the Hunting Beast, uh, is the first guy I heard talking about that. I absolutely agree. You know, go and sit down where that buck's bedding. Feel where that wind's coming from. You almost always, unless you're in real thick cover, um, and, and it may not be wind-based bedding, uh, almost always that wind's coming over the buck's back uh, in some quarter, in quartering way at least. Uh, he's watching downwind. He's got good visibility downwind. You just can't, you can, almost all the time with a mature buck, you physically cannot get in close to him without him busting out of there, you know. And to kill him, you got to get as close as you can but not bust him. So you might, that might be 200 yards, that might be 50 yards, depending on the cover, uh, you know, and in the direction you want, uh, you know, you know he probably wants to head out of that bed and set up. And, uh, you, you know, if he's home when you hunt there, uh, you can get him. So it's, uh, it, it, I, mean, I, I'm, I learn more and more about buck bang every single year. So I, I don't consider myself an expert, but um, I mean, the biggest thing you got to take away is buck, you know, bucks are trying to stay alive. So wherever they're betting is where they know they can detect danger and they can get the hell out of Dodge. So I got a question for you. Um, I've never, uh, and this is specifically to the farms that I hunt and they're a mixture yep. of, uh, like those big draws with ag and, and all that stuff. So I have never found something that resembles a buck bed that is, um, I want to say used so much that there's white belly hair in it, you know, and stuff like that. I'm a, I I feel that on my farms, there's different bedding areas for different winds. It's specifically on some of the properties that you hunt. What do some of these buck bed locations i know you've you mentioned it but yep. specifically what do they look like yeah that's a good that's a good point um because i think i think a lot of guys get turned off you know they they get fired up thinking about buck beds and thinking about okay i'm gonna hunt this bed and he, a buck comes back every day for weeks on end and i'm gonna kill him it doesn't you know i don't see that either i i am probably just about kind of one hand the number of beds buck beds that i found and i mean i've you know, I walk, you know, every mile or every year I walk, you know, 300 miles or 200 miles, you know, scouting and hunting. So I cover a humongous amount of territory. Um, you know, I don't see very many buck beds worn to the ground, you know, bull shaped hair in there that are just getting a huge amount of use. But most of the time in hill country, and I'm, you know, in hill country, I think bedding is different than say in swamps where there's very limited bedding areas, you know, and you have to bed in this specific spot, you know, on this root ball or you're sitting in water. Um, but in Hills, a lot of times I see buck bedding areas are very defined yet. 
So, you know, next time you see a buck bed, um, look around and see, you know, even a lightly used, you know, one bed, a buck bedded here is a great big bed. It bedded here sometime in the last several days. Well, look around and see if there's other lightly used beds. Because three or four real lightly used beds equals a ton of use. You know, you, it's, they add, you know. And that one might be, you know, 20 feet over that direction. And then another one might be 30 yards in this direction. So um, that's kind of how I look at it. And they're lightly used, you know. There, there might be only, you know, okay, a sign up that a buck bedded there once in the last week, you know. Um, and uh, when I see one, and quite often, say on the same secondary ridge point, I'll find several lightly used beds. And then what I really like to find are one or two perennial rubs. So, you know, they're the last year's rubs and there's tine marks from two years ago and three years ago on that same old tree, twisted gnarled tree. And man, that, that just makes me, you know, the hair on my neck stand up. Cause I know a buck's been using this location multiple, di- you know, multiple years. There's clearly a reason. Um, and then I start looking, okay, what are the food sources in the area? What are the, you know, during the rut, what direction is he probably going? What direction are the rubs facing? Sometimes there's a rub line coming into that bedding area. A lot of times there isn't necessarily a rub line, but out two, 300 yards, you might find a rub or two, and but they're facing into or out of that bedding area. Well, that gives you a line of travel. You know, he was going that way, you know, on that particular time anyway. And not necessarily every time, but every, every little bit's a clue. And you can really piece together... Um, you know, a, a kind of, you know, the spider web of, uh, you know, activity that he's got going on. And that, that bedding location is a focal point. Um, and you can just, in the hills, you can pretty much take to the bank where that bed is, where when he was sitting there, the wind was blowing over his back. So you can look in that, and then you can match up, okay, what day was the wind there? Well, it was that day. And, uh, you know, and continue to piece things together. So I, you know, I scroll through historical weather all the time. I'm looking, comparing trail camera sightings to, um, you know, historical weather conditions all the time. I, I'm a spreadsheet nut. I, I keep a ton of spreadsheets. And especially if I'm after one specific buck, I start logging when I saw him, where I saw him, what weather conditions. Um, you know, I, I go crazy. I, I'm looking at, you know, bar- barometric pressure and, and uh, moon phase and all that. So, can you can you elaborate on those pieces there? Because we haven't really talked about the factors. The you know, I'm trying to think of what the right way to categorize these factors are. It's, I don't know weather, moon pressure, humidity, anything like that. What specifically are you looking yeah. for there? What do you think is important? What's not important? Um, let's hear yeah. about that. Yeah. So, all right. Um, so. Admittedly, I am I am uh, you know I, I, I'm a nerd. Uh, I love looking at uh, data or trends. I should put it that way. Um, yeah, because I'm a deer hunting nerd. You know, I, I don't wear a tie for a living. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, they uh, so uh, I'm trying to think how to stuff. You know, if if you had to look at one thing, look at look at well two things. Look at stage of the rut and weather, you know, and I think, you know, I've even heard you guys talk about, you know, paralysis by analysis. That's a dangerous thing. That means, you you know, you're looking at more things than you should be looking.
need to dial it down, focus on the big stuff. You know, it's easy to get distracted by little stuff. You know, I, I mentioned the moon. I consider the moon a secondary factor. Some guys, you know, think it's loony to even talk about the moon. But, you know, I, I think I do see a few trends. But, frankly, I'm not even looking at it that closely these days because I'm really focusing back on weather. Um, and, you know, okay, so uh, for weather, you have wind speed and barometric pressure and temperature um, and uh, precipitation too. But if you just look at temperature, barometric pressure, and wind speed, um, you know, that, that's complica- uh, complicated enough. Um, the temperature, you know, everybody pretty much understands that. But yeah, barometric pressure and wind speed, those are related. So when you have rapidly changing barometric pressure, that means your wind speed's rapidly changing. Or, sorry, vice versa. When you have, when you have high winds, usually that means your barometric pressure is rising or falling uh, pretty fast. And, uh, you know, high barometric pressure, usually associated with good weather, low pressure, associated with bad weather. But uh, not only do you have high, medium, and low pressure, you have rising and falling pressure. So, you know, you can have high and rising, high and falling, you know. So it's it's bloody complicated. Um, so I can see how a lot of guys, you know, your eyes start glazing over and you're like, oh, I'm not going to listen to that. But just my general observation. So obviously, you know, guys know, hey, we got a cold front. It's going to be good hunting. Well, I try to look, okay, what exactly in that cold front makes good hunting? Um, cold fronts come in all shapes and sizes, big ones, little ones, you know. Um, the bigger, the better, obviously. The bigger the temperature drop and the larger the high pressure uh, behind it. And, you know, if a cold front might last three days. I do I'm not hunting all those three days. I want to hunt once in that three days. When is the very best time for me to hunt? Well, that relates a little bit to exactly when the, you know, what kind of pattern I have on a deer. But, I mean, as far as best activity, I love when the pressure is high, like the day after the cold front, is just reaching the highest point. You know, and I've heard Mark Drury talk about that too, and I absolutely agree. Like, you know, that first full day of the cold front is fantastic. Well, I also like a little later in the cold front, You can when you get a wind switch, and I've heard Mark talk about that too, uh, the first south wind. Well, I don't know if it's a south wind per se, but just when that wind switches, I think deer start to frequent new bedding areas um, and maybe enter and exit food sources a little differently, um, and you see really good deer movement then. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to I, – I am usually hunting really tight to bedding, I'm still looking for optimal deer movement conditions, even though I'm, you know, I'm not hunting food plots and stuff. I, you know, but I want every extra minute that I can have with that big buck on his feet. Um, and I firmly believe he gets up a little earlier and moves around just a little more, you know, on those optimal days. So, so that's weather. Um, you know, I mean, temperature, uh, my thoughts on temperature, you know, 75 degrees in early October, deer can move fairly well still. 75 degrees in early November kills activity. Unless maybe, you know, it might be worthwhile hunting a water source. Um, otherwise, you're probably only seeing anything dawn and dusk. Um, although, um, you know, one thing, I put trail cameras on water holes, and I've noticed a lot of use by big bucks right at midday. 
uh, on warm days even. They, they get thirsty in the middle of the day and they come in for a drink. But um, anyway, so, you know, temperature, um, wind speed in the hills has a huge impact on deer activity. The stronger the wind, the more likely those deer are going to seek shelter. Now, a lot of guys say, say you know, I, I've heard this a lot of times, the wind's blowing 30, 40 mile an hour, uh, deer aren't moving. I think deer move great. They're moving differently. They're, you have to get out of the wind to hunt them, and sometimes you know, your air currents can get a little squirrely when you're setting up uh, in strong wind out of the wind of the hills. Um, but um, I, I, I love cold days with a screaming wind you know, in October and, or November. Deer just stack up on those sheltered leeward slopes and down low. Um, I've had some great hunts doing that. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody else is sitting at home saying the wind's too strong and deer aren't moving, but I'm seeing deer moving. They're not out in the wind. I wouldn't be either. Although sometimes you have to be. It's crappy because you may be, 30, you know, 20, 30 feet up a tree and swaying and, and freezing to death. And down at the base of the tree, everything's nice and calm, but you right. have to be up there just to, <laughs> just to have a decent wind. But, in, in that kind um, of situation, Joe, um, how yeah. do you how do you hunt that situation? Because that's one of the things you always hear about is that it's safer yep. to hunt higher up because your wind's going to be more consistent. If you go down low, it's more apt to have that wind swirling yep. and you get detected. So on those windy days when bucks and other deer have moved down lower where they can be sheltered, how can you still hunt them down there without getting winded? Yeah, well, good question because um, it's tough. So for one, so one thing. Uh, I didn't mention while scouting, um, a lot of times I take scent checker with me. Um, that's one of the same, one of many things I learned on the, on the hunting beast. Um, I use, um, uh, those little cotton fluffies for milkweed. Um, and that is by far the best scent checking, um, or the, not scent checking, geez, you know, you can see it myself <laughs> even, uh, wind, wind checkers. Um, uh, anyway, you drop those wind checkers, um, and you can, you know, watch how they float down through the woods for quite a ways, far further than just if you got a little squirt bottle of powder. I can't believe I used it. I carried around a squirt bottle of powder trying to check the wind for 20 years before I figured that out. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so while scouting, um, say say we got a strong wind while scouting, well, I'll drop into a low area that I know is, you know, and this is outside of the season. Um, I, I probably wouldn't be doing it three days before a hunt or something. Um, but I'll drop into a low area and I'll even climb a tree and see, okay, you know, you can find, you can see fu- funny things in the hills. Um, you know, a wind, wind can be coming over a ridge, a real strong wind, and you can get on that leeward side Thermals can be rising, but if it's real cold and cloudy out, you won't have a whole lot of thermal activity. You'll actually have a vertical updraft, and it's a fluid mechanics thing, all right? So um, that strong wind over the top of the ridge is actually lower pressure, and uh, the wind is just moving constantly up that leeward side. And you actually can hunt that leeward side down low if you need to, and that wind will be coming up in your face, going up the ridge, really consistent. Um, it, it's pretty amazing up until turtles start really falling uh, hard, which might happen in daylight, might not. depends on weather conditions. But um, 
Usually, I don't go into a low area unless I test it out first. Um, you know, just to be clear, like like hunting down low is tricky, and I really like to. You know, that's you know, I I copper my bets, so uh, I like to know. I you know I went in there in March and I dropped you know and I should have a win just consistently even though it's 40 miles an hour up on the ridge top it should be five to ten down there and it's just gently blowing down the valley you know um and uh you know i i can usually get that and then sometimes we'll just get crazy squirrely winds i have spots i have a long list of spots that i can't hunt because i don't have a consistent wind and that's something i feel strongly about like i will not hunt a marginal wind i want something that's pretty darn consistent or i won't even i won't even try um, I've had, you know, I've done that many times in the past and I learned my lesson, you know, you push a marginal wind about nine times out of 10, it's not going to work, you know? So, um, how, that's, I guess that's a little bit on that. Yeah. How close do you cut it though? Because I think with some of the things you're talking about, and maybe you haven't mentioned this specifically, but a lot of people we talk to talk about trying to cut the corners on that. So they want, yep. they want yep. to, they don't want to use a marginal wind too often, but at the same time, they want to try to take advantage of how a mature buck will use the wind. So you want that buck to think the wind's sort of in his favor. He's using the wind in some way, but somehow yep. you're able to just cut it. Do you, do you, do you think about it that way when you're setting up? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, oh, let's see. So I see bucks using the wind to their advantage a lot of times around destinations. So when they're coming back into bed, they try to hook into the wind to get the wind in their, in their nose. When they're entering a food source, I often see them enter from the downwind side or even just a low area. They slip into the low area. Well, that's a sight advantage. They're not skylined, but it's also a lot of times when they're entering, say right at last light or right after dark, those thermals are falling and they're pooling in those lower areas. Um, and also low areas in hill country, uh, in the pre-rut bucks like to move through those low areas and, and they can scent check the surrounding ridges. So outside of those destinations, I honestly don't, I think bucks moving a crosswind, moving a tailwind, you know, if, if they don't think there's danger right next to them, um, you know, I, I've killed a lot of bucks with the wind blowing on their back. I've killed a lot of bucks on a crosswind. Um, it's only around those specific destinations. And, you know, a lot of times I am hunting close to a bed, but say, I, I find Jay hooks to be relatively small, say less than a hundred yards. You know, he comes in and he's going to be coming by like 50 yards downwind of the bed and then hook in. That's just an example. Every situation is a little different, but I might set up 150 yards from the bed and kill him in a crosswind, you know? So, um, I, you know, every situation is different, and you guys probably probably know that. But um, I, I will, if I need to, I'll I'll you know the closer I the closer I have to cut it, the more careful I am. You know, I'm usually not hunting down in the valley with a buck coming in from 30 degrees downwind. You know, almost straight in from downwind because just naturally down low, you're going to get a little squirrely wind. But if I can get him coming in across with you know across um, I'm pretty confident I can kill him unless I, you know, hunting gods are against me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, they seem to be against me more often than not. But, <laughs> uh, so with, with all that said, 
when do you choose to be aggressive? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, a loaded question. I mean, it, it, it takes experience, you know, and I, just to be clear, like I've screwed up so many times, like, like, and every single screw up, you know, I mentioned in the, that written interview at, uh, on Wired Hunt, like every single screw up is valuable because you can learn something from it. So when, when should I be aggressive? Well, I've learned to favor being aggressive, you know, and not every time, but if I'm going to make a move, I'm going all out. I'm not sitting in an observation set. Although there are times when, you know, observation sets make sense. But if I think a buck is going to be using a bedding area, I'm sitting right next to his bedding area. If I'm hunting in the evening, I'm hunting, you know, just out of sight and sound and, and scent of him, just just over the hill, basically, um, usually. Uh, or if I'm hunting in the morning, I'm hunting in there, you know, I'm getting in there before he gets home. He's either, if he's coming, I'm going to kill him. He's going to bust me. It's game over. I'm going to move on to another one. So, but, you know, I'll do that once. Boom. That's it. And then that's, that's kind of why um, I stack the deck by lining up, you know, six or eight high odds, uh, you know, high odds setups. And I hit them all, you know, I, I, and the high, the best of the best. I'm not trying to hit one twice. I'm not worried about hunting one twice. Occasionally I'll hunt, uh, hunt one twice. Like this in 2016, uh, it's kind of a per- perfect example, I guess, to answer your question, Dan. Um, I had a camera sitting there in August and September on just off the edge of uh, um, alfalfa field on public land. And I got this really big bodied nine pointer coming in routinely. And he was, he, frankly, he was on the best pattern I'd ever seen. He was just after dark coming into this field. But I think I got him, I don't, it was a bunch of times over a course of a month. I, ch- I slipped in cameras in an easy access point um, right on the edge of the field. A lot of other guys walked the field, and that that deer never showed up in daylight, usually didn't. Um, I think once or twice he did actually show up in daylight. Most of the time it was after dark. Well, I knew he was betting on private land, but the public land extended a couple hundred yards back into the woods. Um, and then I, where I suspected his betting was, um, was there were several big knobs. Um, I could tell from Google Earth they'd been recently logged, so it was fairly thick um, on a ridge a couple hundred yards beyond that. Um, so I knew as soon as I, and he was entering from that side of the field, almost all the pictures were from northerly winds, and that lined up to that, uh, that those, you know, betting on those knobs, those were leeward slope. That was on a leeward slope for a, a northerly wind. So I wanted to take advantage of that pattern as soon as I could. Um, it was an early season. You know, if I could kill an early season buck, this was it. Um, and uh, so I think October 1st, I had a north uh, northeast wind or something. And I snuck in there, set up, you know, 50 yards from the property line probably. And uh, I didn't see him, but I saw... Um, there, there was a little eight pointer that often traveled with him and that eight pointer came through. And then I heard also heard chainsawing basically in exact spot where I suspected he was betting a couple hundred yards further on, on the private. Um, so, you know, so I thought, well, maybe that chainsaw disturbed him. 
So a week later, November or not November, October seventh, I think. Um, and and I should mention, I got in there in the previous year too using this food source. So it was an early season food source. That's one thing. He was coming in on consistent wind. That's the second variable lining up. Um, you know, and I could hunt fairly close to where I thought his bedding was. That was kind of the third thing. Um, so that's what I, you know, those three things lined up and that's why I'm, I'm not looking for just one thing. It's a series of things lining up, boom, take advantage of it. You know, October 7th, I moved in, I actually hunted a different spot and, and I was hunting from a tree. It wasn't on the ground. Um, that's, I, I hunted maybe, I moved maybe 30 yards because I suspected that big buck had come in and the course of that week had smelled where I was. And he was not going to come within bow shot of that tree. So I moved 30 yards, and here I was, 25, 30 yards from the fence now. And that big buck came in, and I killed him. Um, and he was about 25 yards of me. I, I shot him right after he jumped the fence um, onto the public land. And uh, he was 25 yards downwind of me, and he would have been 50 yards downwind of the tree I originally hunted. I am certain he was down there for a reason. He was going to, he was coming through right there to smell if a hunter had been in my first tree. Um, cause that, that's where I'd been in a, a week ago, you know? So that's the case. You know, I, I hunted that twice. Um, and, and to be honest, it was a gut feeling. I could have easily not seen him that second hunt, but I did. I mean, it was just, and that comes with experience. You know, you gotta, and an experience only comes from screwing up thousands of times, you know, but you gotta learn from your mistakes. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I guess that hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> now, so we've talked about this idea of when to be aggressive. We talked earlier about how you're finding where these deer are. We're t we've talked about the right conditions to strike. Um, but one thing we haven't really heard about is how you're specifically setting up on them. Because you've, you've mentioned a number of times that almost all these hunts are first time sits in a spot. So that means you're, yep. you know, you've either set up stands in the summer or spring, or you're going in there and you mentioned you're mobile a lot. So you're going in there and actually hanging yep. and hunting that day of, can you tell us specifically, yep. you know, how you're hanging and hunting these spots without, you know, without spooking deer and whether that be yep. specific gear you're using or things you're thinking about while you're setting up, how you're setting up anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so while scouting, I want to pick, um, I realize I, I did, must have done a lousy job of explaining what I did scouting because all these questions you're asking, answering me, I was like, well, I'm scouting. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. We could just be so, bad hosts. We might be bad hosts. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, <laughs> that's all right. You, well, you've got a lot more, pr <laughs> I think, I'm pretty sure you've got more practice uh, doing your thing than I do doing this. So <laughs> it's probably me. Um, yeah, um, I'm picking trees. Um, and marking trees, I, I just got a GPS actually. Um, but before that, I was still picking trees and marking them that I want to hunt out of in the spring. Um, and also, I do a lot of hunting from the ground. Um, I do a lot more hunting from the ground than a lot of people, I think. Um, and <laughs> that's got even a separate tangent, but I'm picking spots to set up on the ground. Now, um, just real quick, ground hunting really tricky you got to have the element of surprise on your uh, on your favor a few things i i look for i want to see deer coming from a distance at least 50 yards away and i don't want you know i wouldn't set up on the ground in the middle of a doe bedding area you know it's got to be a, a very safe location right, you know in terms of number of deer around you um but i've killed 
a lot of big bucks with a bow off the ground. Um, and I'd say mostly it's because Elm is surprised. They had no clue a human was going to be there uh, until, you know, they came through and they, they caught my arrow. So, um, and I'm not using a pop-up line. I hate pop-up lines. You know, I mean, they serve a purpose, but I just hate hunting out of them because I feel boxed in. You know, I, 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 it's like you sit in a cubicle, Dan. That's how I feel sitting in a pop-up line. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, um, I, I'm building just a rough line. It doesn't even look like a blind. I'm, I'm leaning up three or four logs against a tree, just enough to break up my outline. It really does not take much and not be skylined, things like that. And element of surprise can't get over that, you know, hunt it once works, doesn't work, move on. And then from hunting from a tree, um, last few years, uh, I've, I've used, you know, I used to hang stands. Uh, before the season, I, now I haven't hung a stand on public land in, I don't know, several seasons at the very least. Um, I hunt on a tree saddle. Mobile is the way to go. Um, you know, it's hard to convince somebody who's used to hunting out of a ladder stand or out of a thick stand of some kind, you know, all season long, um, to try mobile. It's like, well, it's so much work. Are you insane? You know, I, I, I've got, I'm sure both of you guys have gotten that too. I know you guys, uh, you know, hunt. You know, you run and gun, um, but like you just, it's incredible how much more success, how much more quote unquote luck I've had hunting mobile than when I hunted fixed position stands. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll use climbing sticks, get up there. Um, I, I actually built a little kind of a foot rest on the top stick. So that's, I see go <laughs> sitting in my tree saddle, um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm probably hunting out of a tree 60, 70% of the time, but even though I'm hunting out of a tree a majority of the time, I'm killing most of my big bucks on the ground. And that's just something I kind of just realized in the last year or two. I was like, wow, you know, uh, something's going on there. And I, frankly, I'm still kind of steady in that. Um, and I think it's cause I'm hunting places that you really can't realistically hunt from a tree. Maybe there's a tree there, but the, you know, the wind that I kill it in he that busted me in the tree or there, or maybe there is no huntable tree there. You know, like the, that buck I talked about back in 2015, um, you know, there, the trees were, you know, two to three inches and four inches in diameter, probably not even four inches in diameter. You know, I would have had a hunt 50 yards away to have a huntable tree on the edge of that cutover. And even then, uh, you know, trimming is illegal on Iowa, almost all Iowa public lands. Maybe there's some, but it is. But as far as I know, uh, you're not supposed to cut any branches. I would add, you know, break the law and cut this humongous shooting lane, which I wasn't going to do, into this clear cut, um, old cut over just to be able to shoot through that canopy. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a deer detected that anyway. So, um, yeah, that's uh, hunting where I need, you know, let the deer tell you where you need to hunt, and then you just have to commit to hunting there one way or another. And I've gotten busted on the ground, uh, you know, a number of times. Um, but uh, I've also, you know, I've also busted a few bucks doing it too. So Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Um, and I think that what you're saying there is consistent with a lot of the best 
hunters of mature bucks that we talk to, so many people prioritize that first sit. So many people prioritize getting into yep. those places and taking advantage of that element of surprise, whether it be in a tree or on the ground. But I think by 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 being mobile in that way, by not hanging stands beforehand and, and by forcing yourself to be mobile, while it has that inherent challenge and, and it's more work that you have to do in the moment, it kind of makes things easier for you in the fact yep. that you don't get lazy. Like me, I've got a bunch of stands pre-hung in a bunch of places. I'm always tempted to get lazy because, yeah, I could be mobile, but I've already got this great spot here that's all set up. Um, do I really want to go through all that work? Um, you're constantly battling that temptation yep. while in a situation like where you're talking about where you just simply have to set up a new stand or sneak into a new spot in the ground, it's much more likely that you're going to be able to take advantage of that first time opportunity just because you've kind of set yourself up for it. So I like, uh, I like, what, I like the way you're approaching that. And, um, yeah. I've got, yeah. I've got one issue. Um, the bad news here is that I would like to keep talking to you about this stuff for a long, long time because we're talking about some really interesting <laughs> things here, but we have a hard stop yeah. coming up here in a relatively short amount of time. And I want to make sure I get to at least one final set of questions that I have. Um, and Dan might have something yeah. final too. But here's my question for you, my final set of questions. It's a two-parter. Um, based on what I've heard from you today, um, and based on the fact that you, you said earlier that you've probably listened to every single episode of the Wiretown Podcast, and from what yep. I'm hearing, <laughs> you, you, you analyze things to great detail. You really look at the the details. Um, you dig in on stuff. So if I had to make a guess about you, I would imagine that after hearing me and Dan talk about how we hunt over the course of 150 episodes, you've probably, <laughs> you've probably picked up some things about what we're doing and maybe have some thoughts on what we're doing right or wrong. So here's what I want to know from you, Joe. And if, if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to, but no, you have to, <laughs> here's what I'd like to know. Yeah, set me up. Yep. So based on what you've heard me and Dan say about how we hunt, I would like to know what you would recommend I change, if anything, in how I'm hunting, or if there's a specific thing you've heard that you think that maybe I screwed up or anything like that. And then number two, what would you say for Dan in that situation? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, okay. So, All right. So the first thing, and I don't really, it don't really have a reason for this. First thing that pops in my head regards Dan, so I'm going to start there. Um, so, <laughs> Get rid of my kids, so I, I've got, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one, so there's one thing, I, okay. and you're probably going to say hell, hell no to this. Um, <laughs> so run, run your trail cameras like you normally do all summer long. Right. And come September, put a padlock on every one of your trail cameras so you can't open them. Put those keys in an envelope and mail that envelope to me. And I'll <laughs> mail it back to you, and I'll mail it back to you end of November. Okay? So you can get back into your cameras, but I mean, you, you've got so much going for you, Dan. You're hunting mobile. Cause you, have, you know how hard it is to hunt. I've uh, convinced somebody to hunt mobile. They're like, hell no, you know, like you've right. never done that before. You know, you're running and gunning. You're on, you've got slob bucks running down there around, you know, behind every tree in southern Iowa, right? <laughs> um, yeah, but, like, don't pay attention. Like, I swear I've heard you say, man, I was a day late or, a, a, you know, a hunt late or whatever, like, ten times on this podcast. Like, okay. it's because I swear, I don't know, I think you're hunting with your cameras too much. Like, use them to hunt, but not 
like, oh, there's a buck there three days ago. Let's hunt there. Just ignore that. Like for the time being, that put it in the bank and, you know, um, pull it out you're next telling year. Me, um, so you're but, telling uh, me that I, I should rely on last year's data yep, more than yep, this year's data. Yep. Yep. And I know, you know, I listen to your podcast too. I know you're using, um, uh, that, that, uh, software package that helps yep. you analyze, uh, trail, trail cameras. And, um, you know, that's a great tool by all, you know, if you're comfortable using it, use it. Um, and you've said you've been noticing a lot of things. I mean, I, yeah. that's exactly what I'm talking about. So look at, you know, when peak rut movement is, when a big buck is, you know, move, on his feet in daylight, you know, in what conditions, you know. It's okay. not necessarily, you know, maybe it was November 5th last year. It's not necessarily going to be November 5th this year. But within a few days of that, with similar weather, he's probably going to be there, you know. You know, okay. you know if he got that lucky there last year, you know, guys don't forget something like that, do you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you so know. I got, and, I got uh, one question. One question yeah. to elaborate on what you just told me. Let's say I go in and I hunt a tree stand, right? That's maybe just up from a pinch point. And I got a trail camera down in that pinch point. Should yep. I, if I go in there to hunt, should I go down an, an extra 40 yards to check that camera or should I still just forget about it? Um, I would probably, if I had to cross any deer trails whatsoever, I would probably forget about it. Like right. any more deer trails or I would check it if I really didn't. I was like, you know what? I'm probably not going to come back here and hunt then go ahead and check it if you're if you're realist you know and who knows maybe you've got bucks running all over on camera and that'll give you you know but even then i'm like okay you left more set there um but uh i don't know i i have learned a lot more for instance i'm so I'll, i'll hang a camera and sometimes i'll have a big buck you know immediately but usually it takes three to five days after i put hang a camera to see what seems like natural movement. And I only know that because I left in a month, you know, in that first three to five days, movement's really intermittent. And I swear it's because I left ground scent there. And, you know, some deer are reacting to it, some deer are noticing it, and then they'll stay away for a while, but then eventually they'll come back. And if I leave that sucker there for a month, that last three weeks, um, you know, and yeah, sir. And I even see that I'll leave a camera there and I'll get another hunter walk through. Um, and boom, no activity for two days. And then activity starts seeing, you know, okay, deer moving this way in the morning and that way in the evening, you know, I start to see more normal activity. So I know there's situations where people can check cameras really low impact, but I think it's a distinct minority. And especially if you, you know, it's really powerful if you can put a camera where you want to hunt next year. Because it's you know it's a high, potentially a relatively high impact location you know maybe near bedding or whatever let it soak you're not there it's watching you know for a full month two months you can leave it there all year if you want um, and it, it tells you uh, a huge amount of information so um, right. yeah there's Great that. advice um, yeah yeah so Mark um, I know you're chasing that big old buck in Michigan yes um, I mean. Well, obviously you're dialed, and and your situation is a little different because I, as you've, I've, I followed that story. I know you had him basically dead to rights in a muzzleloader and chose not to 
take him, which is I think is pretty admirable. Um, but uh, thank you. You know, you want to kill him with a bow. Um, try to kill him the very first time. Um, and by that I mean, I mean, and I don't know your property. Maybe you can say observation, but uh, I know um, in the past you've talked about kind of moving in, moving in. Um, you know, maybe you can sit, if you can sit a zero impact observation sit, by all means do it. But if your observation is any impact whatsoever, go for the kill. Um, so I, I expect to hear, hear about you sticking that buck about October 2nd this fall. So, um, <laughs> Man, I hope so. That's, that's the hope and plan yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So awesome. Yeah. I, I guess just, I challenge you not to be incremental. Um, you know, sit back and then pout. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, and of course, you know, you can, and if you get burned, you can, you know, box up a, you know, a bunch of dog crap and send it to me. I, guess. <laughs> <laughs> I might just do that. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's Cause what... it happens. You know, that's, that's the challenge of hunting one buck. You know, I've been there, I've killed a couple bucks where it's like this buck and this is the only buck. I've burned myself out hunting one buck too, you know, and I try to avoid it for that reason. Like, like, and I mean, I love the chase, you know, we're, we're all suckers, you know, we see that shot, you know, you know, and, and for Michigan, what you're hunting, you know, it's equivalent of me hunting a 180, you know, I, I'm well aware of that. Um, you know, so we're suckers for, you know, that one awesome, magnificent deer, but, um, you know, I, I fight against it, man, because I've been burnt, and that end of the season, you know, that's the, you know, in 2013, I, I think um, I chased one buck for a while, and, uh, you know, I didn't end up filling my bow tag, and at the end of the year, well, I, you know, I looked at, I was like, well, that was a waste of time, you know, and that's a terrible, terrible mindset to end the season <laughs> with, and I probably should, but, um, you know. That's why I try not to, <laughs> but good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things that um, it can be the ultimate high and the ultimate low, that's for sure. If there's anything I've yep. learned about chasing one buck, yep. it's uh, it's a roller coaster, no doubt about that. So yep. so that was great. I, uh, I I appreciate you taking a stab at the hosts there. And uh, Dan, I guess I'll leave yeah. you. Do you have any final question before we let Joe go? I do not. All right. Except will you come on again? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just, just, I I don't know if I should do this, but Mark, and this is coming from Mark, Dan, he said (laughs) as an icebreaker, I probably should, I probably should crack a couple of ginger jokes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Are you a ginger as well? No, no, I'm not, but I married oh, okay. a ginger and I get, I have a daughter who's a ginger, so I'm surrounded by them. So, <laughs> you know, don't, you, you don't need to cut, you don't need to jump across the phone line and kill me. My wife will kill me. So. See, the beard, <laughs> my beard game's ginger, right? So the, the yeah. hair though, I'd fit in, I'd fit right in if I decided to shave, but I'm, I'm getting old and fat. <laughs> so the beard covers that up. <laughs> so are you going to give Good us job. one of those yeah. redhead jokes well, then? Oh man. Uh, well, I've got, I've got, it's gotta be a PG 13 one. Um, <laughs> let's see. Oh, so, so how does, how does every redhead joke begin? By, by the joke teller looking over their shoulder to make sure there's no gingers around. <laughs> True. What do you, uh, let's see. Oh, this, oh, uh, what type 
of ginger doesn't let gingers or sorry, what type of train doesn't let gingers ride? What kind? A soul train. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that was me. Sorry, Dan, don't kill me. <laughs> That's all right, I'm used to it. Uh, I only have nine fingers. <laughs> Yeah, that's all right. Oh, but, uh, yeah, I, I was trying to think of a couple of Michigan jokes, too, actually, just to spread the love. Um, the only the only one I could think of is there was two Michigan hunters, and they uh, went into the woods to hunt deer, and they came across a set of tracks, and one was a big set of tracks, and one was like, that's a big buck. we got to follow and hunt that buck down. The other one was like, there's no way that's a buck. That's got to be a cow. Well, they were both certain they were right, and they sat there arguing, and the train hit them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's sorry, that was mean, Mark. (laughs) Yep, I know. And of course, that was yeah, that was a blonde joke originally, but I just had to stick Michigan hunters in there too, you know, to be fair. So it it worked well. It worked well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Joe, I uh, and I've heard I've heard my share of Iowa inbred knuckle jagging jokes, so I I can take it too, just so everybody knows. So, (laughs) oh man, well, this was fun, and I think um, I think I can speak for Dan and myself here that. You shared a lot of really interesting, helpful things for all of us. So, like Dan said, we we should try to get you on again in the future, and uh, maybe we can talk about our progress of our 2017 season or something like that. Because uh, this has been great. So, Joe, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I mean, it, it's it's pretty awesome talking to you guys. So, uh, good luck. Good luck if we don't talk again before the season. And and uh, yeah, I hope uh, you guys. I hope to see some awesome field kill photos from both of you this fall absolutely and we hope to see the same from you and with that we're going to wrap a bow on episode number 150 and how about that one awesome awesome stuff i am just so ready for hunting season i cannot wait to chase some whitetails and this has just got me more pumped than ever but that said before we go Big thanks to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews, Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did, and I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.